Hey everyone, I am glad you're joining us for this online service. I'm really glad you're joining us for this series as a whole. God really has burdened my heart for this series going back many months ago because as I look at our church, I, I just see the need for God to move among us in a special way that we often call revival. We need him to stir us out of a spiritual spa- stagnation and, and apathy. We need to have him renew our passion for worship, our boldness in witness. We need to have him create in us a hunger for his presence and his word. And that's why I've been so burdened about this series. And and I'm so excited to see the response that has happened in the series, not in floods of people responding, but in God moving in the hearts of individuals. And if you've been here, you know what we've been talking about, this idea of revival, right? That we have talked about in the first week, what revival looks like and how it comes as a fire, as a flood, as resurrection in our hearts. And then last week we talked about how resurrection, uh, revival doesn't come in a crowd, it comes in a person and how we need revival not to start in our country, not to start in our communities, not to start in our churches. We need revival to start in each of us. Well, today what I want to do is press in a little bit deeper and I want to look at the effects of revival. Like what what does the other side of revival look like? And to talk about that today, we're going to look at a passage in scripture that maybe you've never read before. You weren't aware it existed, but it's in the book of Haggai chapter one. Now, Haggai is a prophet in the back of your Old Testament. You may not do a whole lot of reading there unless you have a structured plan where you read through the Bible, but it's a very interesting and relevant account of what I believe is a revival in the nation of Israel and what it looks like on the other side of that revival. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to set the stage by reading a big portion of Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So we're going to read together. We read, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lives in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. And I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on man and animal and in all that your hand produces." So, 
That's an interesting, intriguing, and probably very relevant passage. But I think the better understand it, let me give you some context to, to help you fit in the narrative historically what's going on here. See, we're at the point in the history of the nation of Israel where due to their disobedience, they have been taken away into Babylonian captivity for a period of decades. And at the end of that captivity, the Israelites are allowed to move back home, to move back to Israel, specifically here to move back to Jerusalem. The background for all of this, the prophecy we read in Haggai, can be found in the book of Ezra. So if you go to the book of Ezra and read it, you you understand a lot of the background of what's happening here. Well, what happened is, as these exiles returned from Babylon, they began to rebuild the temple, the house of God, the place of his tangible presence among the people. They began to rebuild it in around 536 B.C., but opposition rose locally around the nation. And when it got difficult, when they faced opposition, they just stopped construction on the temple. They stopped rebuilding it. Now, here in chapter one, in the second year of King Darius, we're told, they were prompted by this prophecy that we just heard in Haggai chapter one to begin rebuilding the temple again. And they're ultimately going to finish it in 516 BC, about 70 years after the Babylonian captivity. But here's what I want us to note, because what Haggai is saying is, is that the people have come back into the land. They started building the temple, God's house, the place of his presence, but they stopped when it got hard. When they faced opposition, when things got difficult, they just moved on to things in life that were easier. Instead of focusing on God's house, they began focusing on their houses and their desires. And I want to be clear here, there's nothing wrong with the people building houses for themselves to live in in the land. But when we read in Haggai chapter 1, when God says while they live in paneled houses, the idea is they didn't just build houses, they built uh, luxurious houses. They built ornate houses. They built houses that were the heart's desire of comfort that they had lost in the Babylonian exile. And so their attention had shifted away from the Lord's house to the comfort and desire of their own houses. And what the point of what we just read is, because of this neglect of the Lord's house, because of this neglect of the temple, the Lord himself brought dissatisfaction, drought, and desolation to the land and to the people. Now that seems hard, right? Like, oh wow, why would God do that? We're going to get there. But what I want you to see is that I believe here in Haggai chapter 1, there's a very relevant lesson for us today as the American church. See, the message of Haggai chapter one, really the message of the book of Haggai altogether is to put the first things first in our life. The prophecy of Haggai is a prophecy of priority. It was written to people like us who would have told you that God was first in their lives. They believed that God was first in their lives. We often believe that God is first in our lives. But the truth is that these people had drifted into a way of life where their intellectual belief in the priority of God was not seen in the way that they were actually living. They would tell you, oh yeah, God and his house, priority, but it it just got hard. But when you look at their life, it became very clear very quickly that the Lord's presence was not a big priority in their lives. 
they gave lip service to the priority of God, but in fact, they live with their own priorities. I think that's true of many of us today. We may give lip service to the importance of God in our lives, but when you look at the schedule of our lives, the economics of our lives, the margin in our lives, it shows that that's just not true. And so what God did is he sent a prophet in the person of Haggai to bring this to the people's attention so that they could get their priorities in line with what they knew their priorities should be. I'm not sure there is a more relevant prophecy in the minor prophets for the American church today. It's not that we don't know what our priorities should be. It's that they're just not that way. That, that's not the reality of our life. And the truth is, the highest priority in our lives as followers of Jesus should be the presence of God in our lives. That's it. Like when we think of what the most important thing in our lives is, it should be God's presence. I think in our heads, even our hearts, we, we know that just like the people of Israel knew that, but living it out is far more difficult than that. Living it out is hard. Matter of fact, you may be thinking to yourself now, I don't know how I can live out the priority of God's presence in my life. But I think it's so important that we figure it out because as we have been talking about revival, as we've been talking about a special move of God among his people, for me, revival happens when the people of God actually begin to live out the priority of his presence in their life. If we want revival to come, it's going to come through the priority of God's presence in each of our lives. And see, when other cares when other priorities begin to squeeze out God's presence in our lives, what God is going to do is he is going to work in the lives of his children. He's going to work in the circumstances surrounding the lives of his children to bring that to our attention. You know, I think that there's no better example of that than in the story of Jonah and the well. Right? We might not know a lot about Haggai, but we know about Jonah and the well, how the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he told him to go and, and to prophesy. And Jonah flees from the Lord's presence, running to Tarshish, the other end of the world away. And he gets on a boat and in that boat, God sends a storm to the boat. The sailors on the boat throw Jonah overboard and then he's swallowed by a whale. But I think when we grow up a little bit, and this doesn't become a child Sunday school story to us, but a real truth of Scripture, what we begin to see is the storm and the whale in Jonah's life were an act of God's love and grace, not his judgment. That, that may be the first time you've ever heard that. I want to say it again. When you look at the story of Jonah as he's fleeing from the Lord's presence, when the Lord sends a storm and when the Lord sends a whale to swallow him, it wasn't acts of judgment and punishment. It was acts of love and grace. Why? Because the harshest judgment of God would have been to allow Jonah to keep running away. In his love, he sent a storm to wake him up. In his mercy, he sent a whale to swallow him, to save his life, and to put him back on the right track towards the city of Nineveh. I think this is huge for us to see. 
And likewise, here in the book of Haggai, God is just being who he is, a loving, gracious, and merciful God, but his loving grace and mercy look like him bringing dissatisfaction, drought, and desolation to the land and the people. He's telling them, look, your priorities are out of whack. You have stopped prioritizing my presence. You've put your priority on prosperity, on comfort, on your selfish desires. And so out of my love and mercy towards you, you're not going to be satisfied with it. I'm going to bring drought so that you can't have those things. I'm going to bring desolation so you'll stop seeking after those things. Because dissatisfaction, drought, and desolation are all preferable to living apart from the Lord's presence in our lives. We need to see those things not as the act of an angry God, but a God who deeply loves us and cares for us, so much so in fact that he will use difficult circumstances in our lives to draw our attention and our priority back to him. So then the question is, When we realize that the presence of God is no longer the priority of our lives, how do we respond? How how do we respond in that? Well, let's keep reading. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, so the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Now, I think this is important because what we see here is a fleeting picture of revival. The word of the Lord through the prophet stirs the people and they respond. But how do they respond? They don't just respond with words. Matter of fact, if you look at the book of Haggai, outside of just a a simple brief yes and no from some priest, nobody other than Haggai speaks in this book. Why? Because their words aren't important. They're not responding with words. They respond with action. The people respond with action to the words of the Lord. When the word of the Lord comes to them and he says, go up to the hills, bring down wood, bring the house of the Lord, they don't respond with, yes, that's great. Absolutely, we will. They don't respond with making new songs or beginning new programs. They simply go to the hills, bring down wood, and begin to build the house. So when God comes to us, When God comes to us as individuals and shows us where his presence is no longer a priority in our lives, how do we respond? I think we respond in two ways. We respond first with convicted hearts, and then we respond with obedient action. And I think here's where we're at. I think there are many of us who don't know how to handle conviction. We feel like when God convicts us, we want to downplay it, We want to dismiss it. We want to pay no attention to it because it makes us feel bad. And we're not seeing that conviction 
as a loving act from a merciful God trying to wake us up. But see, when we understand that the conviction God brings in our life is an act of love, not an act of judgment, it's for our good, then we can respond to it with obedience. Now, the flip side of that is, if you've not been convicted over the lack of the priority of God's presence in your life, guys, that's a red flag. If you're not convicted when it's clear that the Lord's presence is not a priority for you and for your family, when there is no burden of the Lord, when he doesn't wake you up, that's when you need to start worrying. That's when you need to have conversation. That's a red flag. But here, the people are convicted by the grace of God, and they respond in an act of obedience. And I think that's huge. Obedience and that's what's on the other side of revival. When we want to talk about the effects of revival, what's on the other side of it, like we said at the beginning, man, that's, that's all obedience. That's just doing what God has called us to do. And, and, and here's the thing. I, just, I want to shoot as straight with you as I can. Are there moments in your life where knowing what to do is difficult? Absolutely. We have all had moments in our lives where we're not sure what the right thing was. We're not sure where God's leading us. We're not sure of God's will for our lives. Are those moments real? Absolutely they are. But here's what I want to tell you. I need you to lean in. Those moments are real, but they are rare. Most of the time, the majority of the time, we know the right thing to do. We know what God has required of us. Here's the truth. Following Jesus is often simple, but it's rarely easy. The reason that we are not obedient is not because we're not sure what to do. It's because we're not sure we want to do what we know we should do. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, the Christian ideal has not been found tried and wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The truth is that many of us, like the people of Israel, just stopped when it got hard. It's not that you didn't know what God was calling you to do. It's that it was difficult to do what God's calling you to do. And so if you want to see revival in your life, you just need to be obedient in the simple things. And as you are obedient in those simple things, then God will show you with more clarity what to do in the big things. Following Jesus is usually simple, but it's always difficult. So as I close out my part in this series, I want to leave you with this. Revival does not simply result in some warm and fuzzy feeling of a supposed closeness to Jesus. Like as if we've talked about revival for this month and, and all you get in your stomach are butterflies and a warm fuzzy in your heart, you're missing the point. Revival does not just result in feelings, it results in a changed life. It results in living differently. It results in obedience. The results of revival are not positive feelings. They are a changed life. Our feelings are not the fruit of revival. Obedience is. So the challenge I want to leave with you today is, what is God calling you to do? You know it. 
may be hard, but you know it. Will you do it? Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for this time to look to your word. God, I pray that by your spirit, you will empower us to be obedient in the simple things. God, that you would help us to respond today to the conviction in our hearts in a way that honors you and works for our good and your presence in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.